weekends, the Sunday Sweep. Looking at the stories of the week. And joining me today, former leader of the New South Wales Liberal Party, Kerry Chikorovsky. Hi, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Luke. How are you going? Kerry, I'm very well. Nice to talk to you. I was mentioning earlier to our listeners, it's it's four years on from when the World Health Organisation on this day in 2020 uh, called it COVID-19. And I, I'm amazed because people I know or people tell me people they know in families are still split. I've had a couple of listeners uh, confirm that to me on the text this morning. You know, you had people that oh, we've got to follow the rules and do the right thing and we'll be right. Mm-hmm. And others who made themselves familiar with their own science that they discovered and they thought, you know, we'll do things differently. Uh, two things. Thing one, we were always going to see the sun come up the next day and that's proven to be the case uh, with COVID. I don't know if we're completely through it, but it feels like we are. And secondly, uh, four years on, I was thinking to myself out loud, probably time to say, you know what, we've been there, done that, let's get back together again. What do you reckon? <laughs> well, I think there's a couple of things. I think we're probably not quite through it. I think people who are still at risk um, still need to be careful. Um, I've actually had friends who've had COVID for the second time, and, you know, quite healthy adult friends who've had it for the second time, who've actually been sicker the second time around than they were the yeah. first time around. Yeah, so it's quite, it, it's been a bit strange, really. But, mm. you know, I had, like, even my daughter, she was kind of laid up for almost a week. So, um, so yeah, so I know that it's still around. And as I said, particularly for people at risk, they need to be careful. I think the difference this time around, though, is that we're all not panicking about it. Yes. We're all saying, OK, we're going to get sick. Um, we'll deal with it as we should deal with it. Yep. And we'll we'll move on. And I think I think that's been the biggest change, which is, you know, appropriate. I Look, you know, what people forget, and I know there's a lot of people who are critical about what governments all around the world do, did, but what people forget is that, no one really knew how bad it was going to be. Mm. No one knew how many people were going to be affected and indeed how many people were going to die. And I think that it was the scare factor as much as anything else, which meant that governments had to make the decisions that they had. Now, the interesting thing about, about this, Luke, is would a government ever do it again? Would they ever take those sort of drastic measures or have they actually learnt enough from the COVID experience that if we ever get confronted with another pandemic that we'll react differently. And I am of the opinion that there's been a lot of lessons learned. A lot of people have um, had their eyes opened as to how is the best way to deal with this moving forward. And I would be amazed, absolutely amazed, if we ever saw those sorts of restrictions ever again. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. So let's let's talk about a few things that are happening right now like this. A senior planning department official uh, has uh, allegedly spent $3.8 million on a North Shore property months months rather before the public release of major density reforms, then floated the prospect of lobbying the government to more than double proposed building heights at the site. Now, Liberal frontbencher Alistair Henskins has used parliamentary privilege in this past week to allege there was a, quote, strong circumstantial case, unquote. A senior bureaucrat was motivated to buy a property by confidential information about a government housing Reform. Now, I know we have ICAC, and we like to say in New South Wales, you know, as a result of that, we've, um, we've got politics that's reasonably clean. Uh, we'll put it like that. But I, I don't know who does the policing uh, around these issues. Uh, 3.8 million armed with insider info, allegedly. Goodness me, that's what, uh, that's what we don't want to happen, surely. 
Well, and certainly we don't want that to happen. And I think it's quite a, a tick to the system that someone has actually come forward and been a whistleblower and has told Alistair Henskin what's going on. And I think that's probably one of the um, safeguards within the public service, that there are people who are, who can be protected by being whistleblowers. So I think that's perhaps what's happened in these circumstances, or else it might be just one of the disgruntled uh, neighbours who have decided that they don't want to be part of this process yes. and who, are actually, who aren't actually supportive of the idea of putting up eight-storey buildings around Gordon Station. So, I mean, it's interesting. I'd be really intrigued as to what was the motive of bringing it forward, but that's one question. The second question is, how do you actually monitor it? Well, the only way you could possibly monitor... Uh, that sort of transaction within the public service would be if you required public servants to do what politicians are do, to do, and that is to disclose their personal interests. I don't know that we're ready to take that step because, I mean, you're talking about a lot of people and a lot of red tape and a lot of um, record-keeping, but it may be something that might need to be considered for the senior, senior levels of the public service. As you know, politicians are required to disclose all their, you know, their assets, and one of the reasons I never bought shares, Luke, was because you had to disclose when you bought them, when you sold them. It was all too complicated. I decided that was too hard. But that sort of level of disclosure for politicians, to apply that to senior public servants might be a step too far. But, I mean, if you thought that this was a really endemic problem, then it might be something that need to be, needed to be considered. That's very interesting. I mean, we had in the last federal election, you know, the, the federal ICAC, so-called. I don't know if they've uh, had any successful prosecution, in fact, any uh, prosecution just yet, they might be holding, um, you know, hearings in camera. Who's to know? I guess at some point we'll find out. But we we are expecting, aren't we, to keep things as clean and above board as we possibly can. And even though you don't join the public service with the idea that you have to declare everything that you may or may not have, it, it does, you know, it, it, it's whilst it's uncomfortable, it, it might well be where we end up. Well, I think we also need to look at ICAC's um, record in this space. And you, you know, forget about what they've done with politicians because I've got some issues with how they've managed to conduct some of those hearings. But if you actually look at what they've done, they've got a pretty good record of investigating um, what you know, alleged corruption within the public service. And they've, mm. they've gone about it for a lot of years now and with a high measure of success. So I'm not sure that we... You know, I'm, I'm not sure that we need to be overreacting to this particular situation too much because, as, I, as you mentioned in your intro, there are methods by which these things can be investigated. And I note that in this particular circumstance, the minister has already said they've referred it to ICAC. So yeah. there, will be, there will be an investigation. Look, and it could turn out to be, you know, completely innocent. The guy might have um, decided to buy there because, as everyone knew, it didn't matter whether you were in the public service or in the Department of Planning. Everyone knew that Chris Minns had an approach which said that there were going to be high-rise developments around train stations. Now, that they mightn't have identified which train stations, but every single person knew yeah. that the North Shore was going to be on his hit list. Yeah. And Gordon made sense because Gordon is, is also got a commercial centre, so it made sense for it being one of the areas. So I think we shouldn't be prejudging this gentleman, or I'm assuming it's a gentleman, prejudging this person until um, ICAC does its, you know, does its job and has does the investigation. You're not being anti-male, are you? <laughs> no, I'm never anti-male. I don't know if I can talk to you. Goodness me. <laughs> anyone, anyone bad is a bloke? No, 
works. Well, I said I don't want to prejudge by saying <laughs> it was about. <laughs> I'm only joking. Tell me about this international students paying yearly fees of up to, up to $56,000 at some of the country's top unis are gaining places on sought-after degrees with lower entry requirements than local students. Now, uh, I think the universities have got a bit of explaining to do. The unbelievable income they're deriving from international students that arrive here to, to study, you know, good on them. They use infrastructure they've not contributed to. And when we look at the large increase in population last year, much of that goes down to uh, foreign students. But to be disadvantaging local students has me concerned, does it you? Well, it depends on whether we are actually disadvantaging local students because my understanding is that the allocation for international students and the allocation for domestic students are quite separate. So I, I, if we were being told that students in Australia were not being allowed into the universities because their positions were being taken by the international students, then that would be a matter of great concern. Now, the question is... How does the university fund those additional teaching requirements? You know, all the extra resources needed for the international students. Now, clearly, from the figures that you just quoted, the international students are paying a lot more in terms of fees. So my best guess would be that the universities would say they justify this by saying that, yes, we have an allocation for domestic students, we have an allocation for international students, and the international students are pretty well paying the way of all the additional resources that we need and then some, let me say, to actually include them in that co- in that cohort. So, look, the reality is that you know universities are expensive places to run. There, you you want high quality teaching. You need to pay people who are very good, you know, very good teachers, very well qualified teachers. And the fees that they get from the international students are in fact subsidising those costs. So, it's tricky. It's tricky. But the other thing I would also say is that it's actually in our better interest internationally that we have those international students here. Because if you bring international students into Australia, I mean, one of the things that we want them to understand is how we live in Australia, you know, our values, our ethics, our way of government. And if they take those back to the country in which they've come from, that's probably a good thing in the long run. I mean, you all remember there was a thing called the Colombo Plan. And one of the reasons we had the Colombo plan was to bring Asian students in particular to Australia Hmm. to give them an education, but also to teach them about the Australian way of life and particularly things like how we govern and, you know, all the principles of governance that we have in this country, both corporate and um, politically. And a lot of those people went back to their countries and became the political leaders of those countries. And we'd inculcated them with the values that we'd wanted them to learn by coming to Australia and being students here. So there are other benefits to it other than just you know, them getting you know an education. There are, I think, still those longer-term benefits as well. Okay. Kerry, I want to finish on this story because uh, I've covered this a lot over summer, like all my colleagues here on 2GB have, and it's about the broken promise tax cuts of the Prime Minister. And I, I, I'm torn here because I think... Dishonesty costs you big time in politics, but Australians are addicted to free stuff and and getting more of their money back. And so the Prime Minister comes to people with, a lot of people with 15 bucks a week starting in July to so-called ease ease the cost of living. That's 15 bucks a week from July and the problems now. And from a couple of polls, at least news poll, and there's one out today, uh, Redbridge poll shows that 
the government's fortunes haven't gone backwards and they're on a trajectory of going backwards at the end of last year. What's your read on where this leaves the government now, perhaps in a year's time? Well, I think it leaves them okay at the moment because I think people are getting pretty excited about having more money in their pocket. Um, The issue, of course, is that it's not coming, as you said, until July and everyone's facing the cost of living crisis now. Um, Hopefully by July, though, a couple of other things will have happened. Inflation will have come down um, a little bit more and interest rates will either continue to be on hold or um, even have come back a bit. So by the time they get to July, that uh, that, um, tax cut will actually have more of an impact for them because might have a bit more money in their pocket all round. So I think it's okay at the moment. The question, I think, though, for the government will be um, how this plays out in an election campaign. And the we know that previous prime ministers who've broken promises have found themselves featured in election campaigns um, quite prominently in advertising. And the issue for Mr Albanese will not be around the question of the tax cuts itself, but around the question of trust. And he said he wasn't going to, I think it was over 100 times, he said he wasn't going yep. to change the, the, um, the tax cuts. Now he's saying, no, 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 we're not going to bring back negative gearing. No, 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 we're not going to do anything to capital gains. And I can see the campaign already, Luke. I can see the campaign from the coalition going, well, he, you know, he said this and he broke that promise. Why would you trust him on this? And again, you know, the the Labor Party have form on um, negative gearing. They've actually tried to do it previously. You've actually got Labor Party members now calling for changes to negative gearing. I know we had um, Dominic Perrottet make comments about it. <laughs> we day. sure did. Yeah, I sure did. I noticed that. But, I mean, <laughs> the reality is the reality is, he's in opposition and can't do anything about it. So the question will be, and, and you know, for Anthony Albanese and others to say, oh, well, Dom Perrottet is still calling for it, that will just reinforce the message that they're thinking of doing it. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, yeah, good so that's point. A that's a two-edged sword for them to actually try and use Dominic Perrottet to actually counter it. So I think that uh, I think that will be the big issue. I look. The more intriguing thing I found about that um, survey that you referred to is that uh, it said that women are now coming back to the Liberal Party. Yes. And if I well, and the, the really encouraging thing for that was the number of people who said that while Peter Dutton was leader, women would never vote for the Liberal Party. They must be actually scratching their heads, thinking, oh, "What's going on here?" You know, we thought that Peter Dutton was the, you know, the huge, huge reason why women would not vote for the Liberal Party. And if they're not coming back to the Liberal Party, it might go back to something that I spoke about with Mike a few weeks ago, and that is that people mightn't like Peter Dutton, but they're learning to respect him. Yes, and he's being, and he's being consistent in what he's been saying. You know, he's been very strong in what he says. He's been very strong on the issues that he's taken, you know, taken to heart. And so, you know, in politics, I think it's a lot more about respect than it is about like. That's a great point. Love to talk to you, Kerry. Thank you so much. All right. Talk to you again soon. Okay. Look forward to it. Thanks a lot. Kerry Chikorovsky, former leader of the New South Wales Liberal Party. That's a really good point. It's about respect more than like. And, and when you look at the history, so people said, oh, Tony Abbott, he'll be hopeless. And he had that landslide victory. They got that wrong. Then the, the same section of the commentariat, oh, the Liberal Party need Malcolm Turnbull, and they got that wrong because he was hopeless. I don't know where they stood with uh, ScoMo, or I knew they, where they stood at the, uh, at the end of his time. But the way they've, uh, they've prejudged Peter Dutton, you know, they might have, again, well, they've got form, haven't they? They rarely, the commentariat or a part of it, 
get it right in terms of uh, leadership of the Conservatives. Fascinating stuff.